Our psalm of the day is Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge, is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase... Set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson is found in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your help. This morning, as we seek to understand Psalm 62 and all of its wonder and amazement, we ask that you would speak to us, open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things, powerful things in this portion of your scripture. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, about a year and a half ago, Cassie and I bought a home uh, just in, uh, in 
South San Marco, and, uh, and there were a number of things that we needed to do in order to get this place to the point of us wanting to move in. Uh, it was built in 1947, and so there were a, a ton of things that, uh, that I wouldn't prefer uh, about a house uh, that's that old. But, uh, so I, I set about uh, redoing the hardwood floors. Uh, we put window molding on the windows because it was just plain. There was like a... Uh, a a tile windowsill that I did not, I didn't like. And we ended up renovating the bathroom because when we pulled up the floor, there was a, a big hole next to the toilet. And I was surprised that nobody had fallen through it yet. But while I was, we were redoing all of these things, we were redoing plumbing and doing a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I was over there one afternoon uh, and I heard a knock at the door. And I was surprised. We hadn't moved in yet. So I was wondering, why, why do we have visitors? We haven't moved in. There's nothing in our house. All, all you see is my truck outside. And so I opened the door, and there in front of me stood a young guy. He's maybe in his early to mid-20s, maybe right out of college. He's wearing a nice sports coat. He's holding a portfolio organizer in his hand with a bunch of papers in it so that it makes him feel important or look important. Uh, and he's wearing a name badge on the lapel of his jacket that says, such and such security company sales associate. And before I could get the words out of my mouth, my mouth that I'm not interested, this guy launches into his sales pitch, which lasted about five to six minutes. And as he's talking the whole time, so I can't tell him, I'm not interested, please go away. And his sales pitch is, in summary, this. You just bought a home. There's already a, a ton of stress in owning a home, which I was feeling. And the last thing you need the last thing you need to stress out about is the safety of your family. So buy our security system. And I was feeling it. I was. Like every father, like every husband, we worry about the safety of our family, especially when I'm not present. And, uh, and this guy was offering me relief. I was stressed out about a, a plethora of things at that point. And he was offering me relief. He was offering me something that we all want when we feel the stress of life caving in. He offered me to rele relief. And now I, I actually didn't purchase the alarm system because we have a hundred pound yellow lab that, func that, that plays that function in our, in our house. Uh, his bark is more terrifying than his bite. Uh, he's a he actually does a bite. He will love you to death. Uh, but what this guy was offering me something what this guy was offering was relief, and it's something that we all long for when we are feeling the stresses and the pressures of life. We want relief. And so my question to you is, where do you turn? Where do you turn to find relief? When you feel the pressures of life caving in, what is that thing that you look for when you want relief? And for most of us, when we feel those stresses, we grasp for anything and everything hoping to find the relief that we seek. When life is caving in, we grasp for anything and everything. And so what is that thing for you? As you think about the stresses of your life and your reaction to them, where do you turn? Because what the Psalms seek to do to us is to shape the way we live in relation to God and the way we live in relation to his world. They seek to shape us. 
shape our responses and our relations to God and to his world. And what this psalm in particular in Psalm 62 is seeking, it's seeking to shape the way we respond to the stresses of life, pulling us away from the unhealthy responses to stress and pushing us toward healthier responses, more godly responses to stress. David is facing intense pressure. He's king of Israel. He is strong and he's powerful. He commands armies, yet he faces stressors within his own ranks. He says that these men only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. David is seeking relief from the intense, stressful situations that life has placed on him. And he tells us in Psalm 62 that you find lasting relief from those stresses by trusting in God alone. That language of alone is, used, is, is pelted at us. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and salvation. For God alone, oh, my soul, wait in silence. By laying your anxieties, cares, fears, and stress at the feet of God is the place you find relief and refuge in the midst of your stress. But that begs the question, why should we trust God? Why would we trust him when there are a host of other things that offer themselves to us as relief? Verse 11 is actually the key to answering that question. David says this, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Friends, his answer is that we trust God because he is powerful and he is loving. We trust God because of his power and we trust him because of his love. First, you trust because he's powerful. And most of the time when we think about the power of God, we think of for the, the forming or the creating of the universe. Or we think of the, the war between God and between Satan that we think is being waged. And we think of God's power and his strength as if somehow these things are actually detached from our experience and that God is somehow detached, that when he created the world, he then let it go and he's now detached from it. But that's not how the Bible describes the power of God. When the Bible speaks of the power of God, what we have to remember is that it's intensely intimate. God's power is intensely intimate. And in his intensely intimate power in Psalm 62, this power has two intense aspects to it. First, in his power, he acts with justice. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, For you will render to a man according to his works. You see, David is facing, uh, like we said, an intense situation. He's king. He's defeated monsters, the likes of whom we have not faced ourselves. The, the ancient Near East has thrown all of its armies at him, and he has, he's come out the other side victorious. Just as a young man, he took a sling and a rock and killed the giant Goliath. But now he's facing stressful situations inside his own people, inside his own camp. Those close to him are seeking to undo him. He says in verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. 
They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. There are people close to him who bless him as king, who acknowledge the social constructs of kings and subjects, and they honor him as the king of Israel, yet in secret are planning his demise. They take pleasure in the thought of his destruction. And now we don't know a whole lot about the, the particulars we don't know a lot about the particulars of David's age or his, the season of life that he's in. We don't know the particulars of the person or people that are seeking to undo him, to attack him. But what we do know is that David is honest about who he is. He describes himself as a leaning wall and a tottering fence. This image is of a wall or a fence that's ready to kind of topple over. Its foundation has been crushed uh, we have a six-foot privacy fence at the, in the back of our yard. Uh, and during Hurricane Irma, it took a pretty bad, like, brutal beating. Uh, we had a fence along the side of our house uh, protecting a guard, our garden from the monstrous dog, uh, and it toppled over. But the, the, the six-foot privacy fence broke. The, a few of the posts broke. Uh, and so it was leaning. It was tottering. The only thing actually holding it up was the chain-link fence behind it in the yard behind us. David is speaking of himself in a similar way. He's beaten and he's battered. He's bruised and he's barely holding on. And he's facing a situation where people who bless him as king are now seeking to topple him. Yet he still trusts that God is in his power will act with justice. He trusts that God will vindicate him. He trusts that vengeance belongs to the Lord and that God will avenge him. He trusts that these men will receive according to their work. He trusts that they live for violence and they will receive violence because they are seeking, to, they are seeking violence against the innocent. So he trusts the power of the Lord that that he will act with justice. But not only does he act with justice, this second aspect of his power is that he acts to save. Look at the description of what God has become for David. Beginning in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. He says something almost identical in, uh, in verses 5 and 6, but he changes it a little bit. Now he's commanding his soul to be silent. He's saying, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So he changes uh, not only that he's now commanding his soul to be silent, he also changes the language of salvation to the language of hope. Linking these two things, linking salvation and hope, and this is no, uh, this is no accident. David's not miswriting here. He, actually, he links his hope and links uh, his salvation. He moves from, from God is my salvation to from God is my hope. He's saying that his hope is not in his own capacity to overcome his stress, as if breathing techniques and anti-anxiety medication will help him, uh, will be the only hope that he has. And while those things are incredibly helpful tools that God has given us, uh, 
They're not the only hope, and they're not the ultimate hope. He's not even putting his hope in people, that they would help him through, that they would help carry his burdens. He's not hoping in his, in his wife. He's not hoping in his friends. He's not hoping in uh, his counselors or his, the prophets. His hope is in the powerful saving of God. David finds his ultimate hope that God is one who is powerful and who saves his people. I had a, a seminary professor who's also a, a good friend of mine tell us a story while we were in a, in a class. Uh, he was interviewing for, uh, for a, a pastoral position, and, at, and in this interview, one of the members of the pastoral search committee asked him this question. If you could describe your pastoral theology in a painting, what painting would it be? For all of you, if you ever serve on a pastoral search committee, don't ask that question. The vast majority of us are not staring at paintings thinking to ourselves, which one describes my pastoral theology? But his answer was, was pretty remarkable. He said, Rembrandt's The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And if you've never seen this painting, it's a painting depicting Matthew 8, uh, the storm on the Sea of Galilee just before Jesus calmed the storm. And in it, you see these 12 disciples. All of them are freaking out. Some are trying to grab hold of the sail. Some of them are trying to control the boat. Some are trying to find shelter inside the boat. Uh, and some are puking over the side of the boat. And then you see one lone, calm figure. And you know that that figure is Jesus. And my friend's response was pretty remarkable. He said, I can't stop the storm. I can't stop the storm but I can point you to Jesus in the middle of the storm. And friends, God's not always going to stop the storm because that's not necessarily the point. He will rarely pluck you out of the storm, but he will always be powerful and present in the midst of the storm. You can trust him because he is powerful. And in his power, he will work justice for you. And in his power, he will save you and keep you safe in the midst of the storms and the stress of life. You can trust him because he's powerful. But you also trust him because he's loving. He's not only strong and powerful and mighty, but he is tender and loving and meek. David says at the beginning of verse 12, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. This word steadfast love is one of the most popular descriptions of the character of God in the Old Testament. Uh, it's used a plethora of times. Uh, it was once translated loving kindness uh, or, or mercy. And, uh, and it's actually quite difficult to translate because we don't really have one English word that describes what this word is describing. We don't really have one word that captures the entirety of the concept of the word. And so we have to use multiple words, like steadfast love. It's more than just love and mercy. It's a combination of the affection of God that he has placed on a particular people, combined with the condescension of God to work on behalf of those people neither of which are because of anything you have done or accomplished. 
Both are simply because in his good eternal purpose, he has chosen to do so. He has chosen to place his affection on us as his chosen people. And he has chosen to work in accordance with that affection. And so the word we use is steadfast love. It's the only thing that we can, we can put together to grasp the enormity and the, the power of, of his affection and his work for us. And when you trust his steadfast love, Psalm 62 says two things happen. One, you gain confidence. Confidence to acknowledge your need and confidence to face your stressful situation. David is king of Israel, as we said earlier. He, uh, yet he acknowledges himself as a leaning wall and a tottering fence. He's capable of realizing that even as king, he's not out, outside of need. He's not outside of, of requiring someone to help him. He doesn't hide behind a title, but acknowledges his need for help. And not only uh, does he not hide from his need, he doesn't also hide from his situation. He confronts it, speaking directly to his attackers. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him, thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. He actually addresses his attackers directly, not shirking them, not hiding from them, not hiding behind a title. He addresses them because he knows they're fleeting. Look at what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balance they go up, they're together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If, rich, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. What David is shaping us to know and to understand is that people and possessions are fleeting. They are but a breath and a delusion. Why would you put your hope in, in, in what is a breath and a delusion? It's absurd. And so he's saying you can have confidence to acknowledge your need for help and you can have confidence to address your stressful situations because all of those things are fleeting. And the only hope that you ultimately have, the only relief that you ultimately have is, find, is found in trusting the steadfast love of God. So not only do you gain confidence, but you also gain peace. Now this language uh, in, in verses 1 and 5, he speaks of his soul waiting in silence. Once he says, my soul waits in silence. And then verse 5, he says, O soul, wait in silence. And this is not mere like verbal, like no, no verbal interaction. It's not simply that he ceases speaking. But one commentator uh, expresses it this way. It speaks rather of quietness of soul, an inner stillness that comes with yielding all fears and anxieties and insecurities to God in an act of trust. This is the kind of peace Paul speaks of in Philippians 4 when he says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, there's a gnawing unsettledness inside us. There's a gnawing unsettledness inside all of us until we find our rest and our relief in God. And sometimes the only thing that settles us is an intentional commandment to our soul, like David does in verse 5, to be silent and to trust God. But David then moves out of that stillness of soul and, and preaches to the people of God for them to trust him too. Trust in him at all times, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Friends, this is no individualistic peace. This is no individualistic stillness. It's a stillness that is shared. A stillness that brings the whole community together in an act of trust and peace. So friends, we trust him because of his love for us. And that love produces in us confidence and it produces peace in us. When we lay our cares and our fears and anxieties before the feet of our God, who acts as a refuge, in her book, A Wardrobe from the, from the King, uh, Barrett Kios uh, describes a story about a man who was seeking the perfect picture of peace. This guy goes on a search. He's looking for a portrait, a painting, something that perfectly depicts peace. And when he can't find it, he creates a contest. He creates a contest for painters, and then these painters would bring their paintings to him, and they would judge and find the perfect portrait of peace. And on the day of this contest, painters, one after another, reveal their portraits. Some of them are of beautiful rivers and streams flowing down uh, a beautiful mountain. Some of them are lakes with sheep in a pasture. Some of them are of fields. Some are of elegant, beautiful animals, and the audience ooze and awes as each of these paintings are revealed. And then, finally, they get to the last painting, the, the, and the artist uncovers his masterpiece, and everyone gasps. They, no longer are they ooing and awing. And Kios describes the, the painting like this. A tumultuous waterfall cascades down a rocky precipice. The crowd could almost feel its cold, penetrating spray. Stormy gray clouds threatened to explode with lightning, wind, and rain. In the midst of the thundering noises and bitter cold, a spindly tree clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. One of its branches reached out in front of the torrential waters as if foolishly seeking to experience its full power. A little bird had built a nest in the elbow of that branch, content and undisturbed in her stormy surroundings. She rested on her eggs. With her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones, she manifested peace that trans transcends all earthly turmoil. Friends, God is both powerful and he is loving. 
In his power, he acts with justice and he saves you. And in his love, he gives you both confidence and peace. And in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your stress and your anxiety, you can trust him because his power toward you is always loving and his love for you is always powerful. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that this is uh, hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp that you're both loving and powerful. It's hard to grasp that when we place our trust in you, you are the one who saves us. You are the one who provides us with peace and confidence. But Lord, we ask for your grace. Your grace that gives us the capacity to understand this. Your grace that gives us the capacity to lay our fears our anxiety, our stress at your feet. Would you be our refuge and our relief as we trust you this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.